Welcome to Meaning What. I'm your host, Mason Hirschfeld. On today's episode, Sean, Chris, and I discuss the work and legacy of photographer Francesca Woodman and what her story reveals about the fine art world and our capitalism-based art culture as a whole. Warning before we get started, this episode includes frank discussion on the topic of suicide. Additional content warnings can be found in the episode description. Hey Chris. Hey Sean. Hello, hello. Hey y'all. Welcome to another photo episode of Meaning What. I'm so excited when we have these. <laughs> you don't sound too excited though. I'm tired. I got <laughs> vaccinated today. I'm having a beer. This is going to be a loose one. As soon as you can get vaccinated for COVID, please get vaccinated. Even if you think it'll turn you into a robot, just do it. We can all be sexy gay commie robots together. Hi. Uh, but no, I, I am excited to be talking about photography. This podcast is the longest in many years that I, I go without only talking about photography, with having to talk about other art forms. So when we, when we loop back to it, I'm like, oh, yeah, I know what I'm doing once again. I have to fake it just a little bit less. So in today's episode, we're talking about a photographer who is important in a lot of ways in the photo world and who keeps having sort of resurgences she has had a few um, shows and over the last 20-some-odd years, her work pops up again and again in, in major galleries and, and sort of regains this furor. And, and it is interesting because she passed away in 1981, but it's, it's also interesting because while she is very influential in certain photo circles, she's not necessarily super well-known outside of the photo world. So the photographer we're talking about today is Francesca Woodman, um, who is a American photographer, best known for her self-portrait work, largely work that she did beginning at the age of 13, but, but mostly centered on her time at the Rhode Island School of Design, RISD, which is a top-tier uh, liberal arts school in Rhode Island. And her work is the sort of work that in, in many ways is very fine art world friendly, especially for the American fine art world. She was a young, beautiful woman who photographed herself often in the nude, and her images are largely self-portraits. Sometimes there are other figures who come in, and they come with very little background. She didn't tend to write about her work. She didn't publish a whole lot of work. We'll talk about sort of the situation around that in a minute. But what that has allowed since her tragic suicide in 1981 is for the art world to sort of revisit it with almost this blank slate. And with that hindsight, her work has been sort of recast as this sort of beautiful, tragic story and this kind of perfect surrealist body of, of imagery and has she's sort of cemented herself in the permanent American photographic canon. 
she's somebody that I like to talk about because especially with people who are beginning to learn about photography, who are beginning to look for photographers to emulate, particularly young female photographers who are looking for other female artists to emulate. Her work is striking. It is attention-grabbing. Nude work is always attention-grabbing, but it is also this very heavy-weighted atmospheric work, right? You can get people's attention by presenting them with this work, but it is also a really interesting conversation that has to follow about how we talk about artists, particularly artists who have died and particularly female artists. In a lot of ways, her work and her fame and her sort of spot in the canon is a excellent place to reflect on the way that we think about photographers specifically and, and young tragic artists in general. The two of you weren't familiar with her work, correct? Had you heard of her before? No. Not before you talked about her. Yeah, today's the first time I've, I've looked at any of her work or have even really come across her name. It's, it's one of those funny things where like when you are entrenched in a world, there are these, these names that become household names that you forget that people who are not entrenched in your world just don't necessarily know. It yeah. becomes really easy to just sort of get trapped in that, as, as we've talked about before. But sort of coming across her work, what, what, were your, what did you guys think about it? We'll start there. Sure. I found, like, I don't know how directly influential it is or, like, how, quote-unquote, groundbreaking it is, and you can contextualize that for me, Mason. But a lot of, especially, like, the self-portraits but when she's looking directly into camera felt, like, very of what is, quote-unquote, cool and considered fashionable, um, artistic in the, like, fashion photography world. Like, to me, a lot of it reads, like, what, edgier fashion magazines do like id mag in terms of like it's it's not i don't give a fuck i'm not trying that hard but i'm just glamorous by my inherent beauty and just sexy without trying so ultimately it all comes off as quote-unquote cool um and then in the in the other works that use like long exposure that were blurred and stuff to me you know if i was couch psychology reading into it it's about like the ephemerality of existence and beauty so i feel like i just don't have the context to know like what why is she quote-unquote special important or what does that all mean and how much of it is yeah how how influential her work can be when you connect all the dots yeah for me i kind of felt some similar things you know there was like this gap of context um by not being a part of not only just the fine art world of photography, but kind of fine art in general. I'm a little bit, kind of quite a bit removed from that. And as I was looking at her pictures, at her self-portraits, I was kind of faced with this dilemma of, I feel like this has something that makes it important that I'm kind of just not grasping. One thing that I did notice was, especially through a medium that is sort of designed to capture the world as it exists. A lot of her work seems to bend the idea of realism and 
you know, have this like surreal and as Sean said, ephemeral quality uh, that I didn't think could really exist at least not, maybe not in the seventies in what I would consider to be, you know, like high art, fine art photography at that time. So it was, it was surprising. And it's interesting because her work in and of itself is not the first work like it to exist. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The Dadaists in the 1920s and 30s and to a lesser extent the 1940s were doing similar things, right? Um, Sort of pushing the boundaries of what a correct exposure meant and, and what a portrait meant, right? does a person have to be in the frame or be readable for it to be a self-portrait or for it to be a image of a person? Can we think about movement as the figure rather than the figure as the figure? That sort of thing. And of course, it's kind of impossible to read into who is influencing her. Um, one big issue with, with Francesca Woodman's work is that she was 1920. 21 when she was making a lot of it and she she didn't have any published books with the exception of one I think that she got published in her lifetime she didn't write a lot about her work she just worked in the way that you do when you are in college and becoming an artist you just you make work and you sort of think about the rest of it later um and so her portraits touch on a lot of things that are very attractive in photography to a lot of people they touch on the beautiful figure, the sort of traditional, attractive, white subject, particularly female. They touch on the abstraction of a tool that you know, in this case photography, right? Like how a person's body changes when you crop it or move through a frame through a long exposure. They touch on, well, I I would argue that they touch on what we in in photography call ruin porn, mm. uh, which is like going into dilapidated buildings mm. and photographing them because they are inherently beautiful in some way, right? She photographed a lot in derelict houses and empty warehouses and stuff like that. Her work touches on all of these things that people like in photography. So I think that that has been a big reason why she keeps coming back. It's, it's work that is sort of evergreen, it also is lacking a lot of like the time signifiers that work by, I don't know, Stephen Shore would have, who's photographing his motel room in 1972, right? Like you can tell what a hotel room looks like in 1972. Even if you weren't alive then, you can be like, oh, that, like that color of carpet <laughs> and that wallpaper didn't exist outside of that era, right? Her her images lack that. Yeah, so they are they are timeless in a big way. And especially contemporary photographers are really drawn to that because we we get pulled toward photos that look like they could still happen. There's a photograph by a photographer named Julia Margaret Cameron, who was a woman that picked up photography in her middle age. Um, and she photographed an actress, I believe it was Mary Ryan, who was a Broadway actress, if I remember correctly. And the portrait is very much like an Instagram portrait. Like it's her leaning up against the wall and sort of has her 
her hand, I think, is clasped at her chest, and it is a, an image that shows up in photo textbooks constantly because it's like, here's a nice portrait, right? Mm. And it's not alienating in the same way that Abraham Lincoln and Ulysses S. Grant standing in a tent is, you know? So I think that that has something to do with it. Is her work like actually exceptional or is it just a perfect storm of check marks? Because you, we can talk about inherent skill and value, but like it, from the way you're describing it, it's like a skill, somewhat skilled photographer who's a young, who's a teenager romantic doing these things. So is there like inherent quote unquote maturity in her art or particular facility or creativity that has allowed her to kind of take on a life of its own post death? Yeah. I'm wondering if like removing her story from the art changes the narrative that her work has in the photographic canon and the fine art canon. Yeah. And this is why I want to talk about her, and this is why I talk about her when I can, because her work is gripping. It is work that you look at, yeah. and it is work that gets a reaction out of everyone, rather whether they like it or not. Nude photography is excellent for that, but it, it's also attractive work. Like, it's work that is pleasant to look at if you are not offended by a nude form. But it is hard to talk about her, and it's hard to consider it that way because her work is almost never talked about without her tragedy. Mm-hmm. It, and and so in a way it's almost core to the work. It's sort of the same way that we talk about Van Gogh. He's this troubled man. He cut off his ear and that's why he has a bandage in this portrait. Like, But it allowed him to paint in this way and he suffered and suffered and suffered and then he died and now he's famous. In a lot of ways it's the same thing. Nobody cared about her work at the time. She really struggled. She graduated from RISD. She did a couple of semesters in Italy. Her family was had some connections in the art world, and she did okay, but she never really gained traction. Nobody really cared about her photographs. And she moved to New York after graduating, and like she sent her portfolio out to fashion companies and, and was trying to get work, the kind of work that you get in New York in 1981. Uh-huh. And... Nobody was biting it. Really? And so she slipped into a very deep depression. She tried to kill herself once, and she went to therapy. There was some sign of recovery, and then in 1981, she threw herself off of a balcony in New York City and and died. And that is, it was only after that people started really looking at her work. And so for it to exist in the canon outside of that, I don't think it does, and I don't, necessarily know that it can Mm. which is perhaps the biggest problem with it because i don't know how to answer that question yeah we'd never know right and it is so ingrained in the way that we talk about her work because her work like i said earlier she doesn't write about her work at least not in any way that i've really seen in the one book that she published um it from what i understand i haven't seen a copy of it I've never come across one, but it is sort of indecipherable. Is it the geometry book? Yeah, where she like pasted her photographs into a geometry textbook and whited stuff out. And But she didn't write about her own work. 
we don't we don't have like artist statements and interviews and the sort of things that yeah, come Yeah, a lot with, of them don't even have titles. Right. A lot of her pieces. Which isn't so unusual in modernist photography, but it's problematic when otherwise you would go off of a title. Mm-hmm. We have titles for bodies of work, but that leaves this kind of blank slate to sort of apply whatever you want from it. And, and what gets applied, I think, is the sort of tragedy of her story, which is something that is marketable and something that is that fits really neatly into it. And so we can't know if like she's making work that appears to be about ghosts and about ephemera and about being unknowable and unseeable and about her own body and about her own femininity. We can't know what she's talking about because she didn't talk about it. If there is a second lesson to this podcast, the first lesson being educate yourself. Number two is if you're going to be an artist, write about your work. Talk about your work. Talk about your work to other people. Write it down. Because if anyone ever sees it and you haven't told that story, someone else is going to tell it. And I think that that her work in particular is a really excellent example of that because it is all about the mind of a young woman. And that is all it has ever been about. We're not really able to separate it from that. Duly concerning, but also wildly unsurprising. From what I know about the fine art world, there's so much troubled genius nonsense where we we miscontextualize everything through the lens of mental illness being somehow glamorous and the only explanation for artistic excellence, right? And to hear it almost like prop up the work that kind of falls apart without it is... Yeah, and it also winds up taking an artist who is a person who contains multitudes and is more than just this one thing, but it just boils them down to that one thing. Like, you know, Francesca would have been, was a sad artist, period, when she had so much more in her life. But, you know, as somebody who literally just found out about her (laughs) very, very recently... That's all I know about her as a person and as an artist. And I oftentimes feel like, especially when you don't have anything else to go on, that's what you're left with. You know, like with Kurt Cobain, who is another tragic artist who we lost to suicide, he, even though there is so much that surrounds him and Van Gogh, for, for example, as well, even with all of that stuff that surrounds their lives that we do know about and the information that we have about their work and what influenced them, it's still so easy to boil those people down to sad artist, tragic artist, lost too soon. And it lends this air of mystery to it too. Yeah. If we can't understand it, it becomes worth pursuing to understand to circle back and maybe answer that question of like, is this interesting work, right? Is this technically successful work? Mm-hmm. I'm avoiding the word good. Right. If you look at her work, it is interesting. It is genuinely gripping. She had a really interesting approach to framing. Um, a lot of the photographs were done on medium format and a square format which adds to the like timelessness of it. Like 
it it would feel very at home on Instagram right now. It has right. it has the right colors. It has the right style. She has the right look, and it really kind of lends credence to the idea that there's nothing new under the sun, and we're just repeating ourselves ad nauseum. Her, I mean, her work is genuinely interesting. There's a lot of it that doesn't feel fleshed out, right? It doesn't feel like it's thought through, and that's probably because she was a kid who was figuring out her photographic voice, right? But there are there are images that are are really striking. One of her where she is like laying on a chair and her she's in a in like a blue dress and her face is cropped off and her feet are cropped off and it's like the way that you would pose somebody if you wanted to make it look like they're flying, but you're seeing all of the wrong parts of the image for that <laughs> illusion to work. Mm-hmm. Super interesting, right? And not a flattering photograph of somebody, but it's it's fun and it's weird. There are images of her like sort of jumping in doorways or like moving in and out of doorways, and it's it feels very much reminiscent of like Victorian ghost photography yeah. and 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 that sort of thing. There are there's a really interesting series she did where she like her body was was wet and so like she'd gotten out of a bath or something and she laid on the ground and left a body print and then yeah yes she's sitting out of frame so you might see her feet or her legs from a chair and then the self portrait of is of this mark that she leaves like these are all things that are genuinely interesting and if you saw them in student work you would be like keep pulling on that thread and and so is she a good photographer or not I think so. Like she shows, she showed some promise and her prints, her print quality was great, you know, and consistent. Her photography, her exposures are consistent. Her concepts appear to be consistent. Like, like she was solid and she would have probably been a very successful and meaningful artist on her own. But in the sort of tragedy of trying to survive in this business, of trying to even enter it, all of that has gotten overwritten. And so again, it, it comes down to like, can can we really separate her skill from the sort of tragedy of her as well? Because we don't have a full career to look at. We don't see a development in the same way that we would with Lee Miller, for example, who starts photographing at about 19 or 20 in Paris when she meets Man Ray and then photographs straight through the world, the Second World War. And has a very dynamic career that that changes. We can we can kind of track out that and and see how she develops as a person as an artist. And she gave interviews and she wrote about her stuff. And we can kind of trace it back. We don't have that with Woodman. I wonder, like, can you talk about why you in particular are so interested in Francesca's work? And also maybe, <laughs> what does this make you feel about your experiences in the fine art world? I don't think that at this point in my life, at this point in my career, at this point in being a photographer, I am interested in Woodman's work. I'm interested in the way that we talk about people like Woodman. Okay. I like her work. There are images of hers that I really enjoy. There are images that I don't care about. I like. I don't know that I would buy a book of her work. When I teach, I usually include some of her images because it's good, like self-portrait 
work, but her, like my connection to her is the way that we talk about her in the fine art world and the way that we cover her. And that is why I kind of stick with her. And that's tough, right? As a straight white man who checks a number of boxes, she should appeal to me. And there are reasons why a person who fits my description would enjoy her work. And so there's an angle to that where it's like almost uncomfortable to enjoy the work because it is, it is voyeuristic in the way that only photography is right. And it is problematic in the way that only photography is when largely male curators gush over the work of a young woman. It, there are problems inherent in that. But the reason I think why I think about her and about her work is because of how we talk about it and because of that place that she holds and mostly because of the ways that I was exposed to her work, which is, you know, when her shows would come up and in The New Yorker, for example, they would write a long gushing piece about how beautiful and tragic she was and how her work is this amazing example of ephemeral beauty and immense tragedy. And, and you read something like that and it's genuinely interesting. Like you want to see that work. You want to see what sort of person creates that. And so you start digging and then you realize that that is the only way that she's ever been written about. And that is kind of damning for this world that you want to be a part of. I think that's why I have had the interest in her that I do because she embodies so many things about the fine art world that I have a problem with. Tell us about these problems, Mason. Tell us about them. Okay. She's not problematic, but our love of her is. And it is hard because her work is important. Her work is influential. Her work has been very important to a lot of people. And so there are a lot of people who have this personal relationship with this work, of this person that we don't know, that we'll never know. Her prints will sell at auction for large amounts of money, and, and she has an Artnet page with $8,000 prints on it. Money that she never saw in her life, success that she never saw in her life. And so it, it raises these questions of what happens when an artist dies? We talked about this, I think, in, in Rothko, yes. the first episode of this this year. What happens when an artist dies and suddenly their work is for everyone else, right? What's it mean for an artist estate to exist? It means that somebody is making money off of that work. It means that this person who, in her case, struggled for recognition all her life, finally got it in a way that does not benefit her. And does that mean that we shouldn't look at the work? No. I think that there is value in everything, right? I think I think that if the work is there, it needs to be looked at and it needs to be talked about. But at the same time, like, I can't ignore this fact that she has an $8,000 print on Artnet, and somebody is going to make $8,000 on that print. Yeah. And it ain't her. And it ain't her. And she died because she felt that she could not succeed. There are museums who will make millions off of her shows from ticket sales we we talk about her and we talk about her work and and it is no doubt important but we can't support the people when they are making it we only care when they're not in the way anymore 
when their own visions don't get in the way of, of how we talk about the work and in the way of how we consume the work. We don't have a terrible amount of concern for the way that our consumption of the creation of others affects those people. It hasn't gotten any better since the 1980s, right? It's no easier to be a photographer in America or an artist in general. And this is a young woman who went to RISD, whose parents were connected to the art world, who meets all of the criteria to have a successful career, and she didn't because she was not in the right place at the right time until after she wasn't there anymore. So what hope does the person who goes to a state school or doesn't go to school at all have to make it in the art world? They, they don't. So everybody in the art world just sits in a circle and jerks each other off and launders money for wealthy people and the rest of us are stuck here going, well, you know, I'd really like to talk about these things that I think are important and make this work that I think is important for other people to see, but I can't feed myself. Is there a way to consume her work? And I guess a broader question of like people who we miscontextualize, is there a way to consume it responsibly or can we understand the context, understand its worth, but also try to remove, try to remove too much in the third hand, invisible hand telling us what to think. To some extent with Woodman's work, we are beyond that question. And I think why I wanted to talk about this is that there is a sort of reckoning that we have to have culturally with how we view our idols, right? How we view the people that create the things that we enjoy. It doesn't do us any good to recontextualize Woodman to some extent. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't try. At some point, somebody becomes so entrenched in the canon that, like, our conversations will always involve this is how the art world viewed her art, right? And so we can kind of evolve past that, but it's not a problem that can be solved because the damage has already been done. Mm-hmm. So to some extent, like, the answer to that is forward thinking or forward looking, mm-hmm. rather. I think that at the end of the day, like, when a creator dies, their work should go into the public domain. I think once you're dead, nobody should be able to make money off of your work. Yeah. I think that's just how it should be. I think that the only person that benefits from copyright extending beyond a lifetime is corporations who own those copyrights, right? I don't think that the secondhand art market should exist, which doesn't mean that you can't own art, but I don't I don't think that anyone other than the artist should make money off of it. And if that artist is no longer here... There's nobody to make money off of it. I think that that's where the answer to this sort of thing lies. And Woodman is just an example of it. And I think it's important to talk about her and to talk about people like her because they are a springboard into that having that conversation. How, How do we consume art? Why don't we want to pay for it? Why don't we want to support the people that make it. part, And there are many layers to that, right? If you are making $8 an hour, $7 an hour, you can't buy art. And there's good reason for you to pirate music or pirate movies, right? So there's a whole conversation there about just how we think about worth and labor 
in this country. But all of that starts with looking at the artists that exist, like Woodman, who hold this place and who are talked about in a certain way and going, okay, how do we talk about this person? We shouldn't stop talking about it. Her work has influenced a lot of people. Her work is important. We've decided that it's important. And until we decide that it's not important, it's going to be important. So if it exists, how do we talk about it in a way that is beneficial to her and to the people like her who exist right now, right? Yes. Whoever they are who are struggling in the same way or who feel that they need to take such drastic measures because they they don't have another option to exist doing the things that they think are important. Yes. The problem with having those conversations is that they're hard and they indict all of us and we don't like to have those conversations. But until we do and until we do in mass, it's like anything else. We can't really hope to fix it. Yeah. I don't I personally don't know that many artists on the kind of like in terms of quote unquote fame on Francesca Woman's level and like reckoning with that, but I can think about like music artists that were broad cultural touchstones who experienced tragedy towards the end of their life and how we consume their media and it's icky. I am particularly disturbed by the like hologram tours. Those really just, I'm like, who wants to see a hologram of Whitney Houston <laughs> with a live band <laughs> with recording of her sing, uh, like a shimmery recording of her singing? What? Why do we want that? There's YouTube. Ooh. But the whole idea of the 20, what is it? The 27 club? Yeah. Right? Yeah. Like that mythos. Oh God. They're, those people are heroes. But the, I talk about them. They are Jimi Hendrix and Janis Joplin and Kurt Cobain and, and all of these musicians who died at 27, if I have the age right. There's a lot of mythos about that. They all had white Bic lighters and it becomes part of legend of, this obsession that we have as a culture here in America with the outlaw that died young, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We really celebrate that. And I, I feel like this is kind of an extension of that. The difference being that like in music, they reach a much broader audience, right? Yes. And then we do things like the hologram tours, which cheapens their lives, even with somebody like Whitney Houston, who had a very tragic life in a lot of ways. If we can just watch her as a hologram, you know, we don't have to really think about what her passing means and what everything before that means. She becomes a a performance piece. And so I feel like Woodman and artists similar to her are just sort of the same phenomenon happening at a smaller scale. Right. It is It is that phenomenon happening in a way that academia can write it off as academic study you know this is a heavy one guys yeah that last bit is particularly disturbing of like intellectualizing all of this so then therefore you can comes off as less inherently crass rather than hologram tour it's dragging out all her art over glamorizing her suicide for yet another museum exhibit yeah it's like the intellectual left-leaning version of people using 
the Bible incorrectly to make it so that what they're doing, even though it's awful, is right and just. Right. It's kind of like this weird thing where it's like, yeah, I, I mean, I guess I can see where you're coming from, but that's still fucking awful and you're a bad human being for it. It, it is also kind of like when an economist writes about minimum wage and you see it in the opinion section of the New York Times and they're looking at inflation over the past 20 years and they go, uh, wages have been stagnant for all of this time and that doesn't meet all of our models. What does this mean? We can't figure it out. And the, the missing part is fucking empathy. <laughs> it didn't work because economics exists outside of human activity. And the reason why wages have been stagnant is because we've allowed people to not pay people below them more. Right. But that doesn't fit in the economic model. And so blah, 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 blah. Yeah. The problem with art though, is that you have that academic intellectualism happening. And then you also have that, that thing that I think happens with, like you're saying, Chris, like the religious right, which is the, this is my understanding of this thing, mm -hmm. and because I experience it in this way, it is true, right? Yep. The the Bible be damned. <laughs> the, this is my understanding of Christ, and so it is true. You have that, and then on top of that, I have that basis of understanding based on 30 years of academic experience. Yeah, It doesn't matter that I haven't made an art piece in all of those 30 years, but... I know more than you because I am part of that intellectual elite. And that is a that is a slippery slope argument too, right? Because academia is important. We need to understand what we're talking about. And it should be no secret by now that I am all for higher education, but... But not as a tool to be a jackass. Right, exactly. There has to be a line. Not as a tool to reinforce your own worldviews. That's not the point, right? Yeah, get a PhD. Just don't be a fucking twit about it. <laughs> Can we get t-shirts of that? That's Those are our t-shirts. <laughs> I was just going to say that. That is merch right there. Fuck yes. your PhD. Fuck <laughs> I want that on a no. coffee mug right now. <laughs> <laughs> How does one become an art critic? Like, oh, That's a very terrible broad question. But, you know, like, there's for every kind of, like, critic of culture, arts, etc. There's always this feeling like, how the fuck did you get there? You just started writing about writing your opinions <laughs> and someone said, yes. Like restaurant critics? I feel like 90% of them have never been a chef before. And you're like, who told you you were good at eating and saying this is good or not? I don't know. Like, how is anybody an expert in anything? Yeah. The entire field of art history exists because we agree on what art history is. Academic art is particularly difficult. So I did, I did a piece early in grad school about how we talk about art academically. The concept of the piece was like, could I write artistic theory that didn't mean anything? Could I just take the jargon and have it randomized in some way and have it be convincing, right? And then if so, like, what's that say about how we talk about it? This is about the time that, like, predictive text algorithms were 
becoming very in vogue, I used a thing called Botnik, which was created by a group of artists and coders, um, most famous for writing a chapter of Harry Potter that is absolutely madcap and <laughs> wild. It made the rounds on HuffPost and everything for a minute. But they, they've created this great tool called Voicebox where you can upload text and it creates a predictive text keyboard, much like on your iPhone, when you up above the keyboard, it guesses three words that it thinks you're going to say next, right? Right. It, it does that because you have typed millions upon millions of words into it, and it has some understanding of how you use the language. If you've ever played the game where you open up Notepad and just hit those random words, you you realize how quickly that comes apart because there's only so much that this tiny little artificial intelligence can understand about how we speak. But they developed a sort of web app that is designed to do that in mass. So I took a bunch of my own writing and a bunch of theory from my own research, put it into a plain text document, uploaded it, and then I made a fake piece of artistic literature out of a fake art journal that I made up about a photographic movement that didn't exist. <laughs> I put it in a gallery along with some other work. People moved through the gallery, picked it up, read through it, thought some of them fully thought that it was true. Some of them kind of questioned it, like I've never heard of this before, but, you know, maybe there's something. Did anyone try the whole fake? Oh, yes, I remember. I was there for that. I don't remember anybody saying that to me, but... Oh, yes, you know. I've heard of this. Yes. 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 The great I remember this. I studied him in undergrad. <laughs> <laughs> there's a thing that you do in a gallery where you, um, like, if there's an artist, if, if the artist is there with their work and you don't get it, trade secrets. You can approach the artist and talk around it and sort of guide them into speaking about it. And as you, like, bring up keywords, they'll tip you off into certain things and then like you can fill out your own understanding about it. You can't do that if what you have just been fed is a bunch of bullshit, right? <laughs> because it, it doesn't exist. It's nonsense. And that was the point of, of the piece. Why I wanted to do it is because unlike other academic writing, unlike physics, for example, there is a language in physics that I don't understand because I'm not a physicist but they have to talk about things to each other in a way that other physicists will understand, right? That's important. It's important to what they do because you can't spend all of your time explaining everything, right? You have to have a shorthand, right? And, and a language evolves and it, it's a common understanding. That's how language works. Art has the same thing, but it's not based in anything empirical, right? It is all based in things that we can't, pinned down. It's all based in personal experience and consensus, as we mentioned before. But that language traffics in the same way that the language of science does, the language of technology does, the language of engineering does, right? We hold it to the same esteem that we hold the language of mathematics to, but it doesn't have the same real-world root. Mm. The beautiful thing about academic art is we don't agree on everything. It is one of the fields of academia that is not concrete. We don't have laws 
because as soon as you think that something is established, somebody comes along and says, well, I figured out how not to do that. And that's the point. That's the whole idea. When you create the idea of art criticism, you have to enforce that language to some extent because you have to be able to talk about the thing in a consistent way. And to do that, you have to have established guidelines, right? And this established language, these universal truths. But art on its own doesn't exist that way. And so art critics often exist outside of art, right? They are sometimes artists themselves, but sometimes they're not. And that art criticism, like, floats around and informs the sort of people that read the art criticism parts of the newspaper, the New Yorker, the Atlantic, to try and inform, like, what they think about art. It informs academia because it informs how we talk about art in academia, but it doesn't directly inform artists, right? As an artist, you read it, especially if you study art formally, because it's useful, because it informs the way that non-artists will talk about your work, because you have this established language from which the intellectuals of the world are going to be pulling from, but you're making your art outside of that. Mm-hmm. Unless your work is inherently about this thing, you're not thinking about your place in socioeconomics or your place in gender politics or your place in whatever. Because that's not why you make art, right? You're not making art for the critics. You're making art for yourself, and then you're hoping that that other people think that it is as important as, as you think it is. I'm sure there are people out there who do do art for that for the discourse oh absolutely i am i am feminism (laughs) there's also people out there who do it just because like oh i think somebody's gonna give me eight thousand dollars for this print because i'm hot Uh, jeff coons (laughs) (laughs) because i made a giant balloon this is a pile of stuff that looks like plato but isn't plato give me a million dollars done is is coons the guy who did the sculpture outside of the golden one center Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. That is Kuntz, um, which is also why the Crocker, which is our local art museum, sells his balloon dogs. Yes. Cool. They didn't hire a Sacramento artist to put art outside of the arena that nobody in Sacramento wanted for the worst basketball team in the NBA. We touched on this a little bit in the last episode with Naomi, but yeah. Still a sore spot for a lot of people. I hate Jeff Kuntz. I hate the work around that stadium. I hate that fucking stadium. But I digress. There are people who actively try to avoid politics in their art. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people do. I think because it's scary, but also because they genuinely aren't making it for that reason. And that is a problem on its own because all work is political and all of our lives are political and everything that we say is political and you can't avoid that. So where does this lead us all to? So, if everything you say and do, and everything you don't say and you don't do is political, which has been really underlined in the last year, I think on a cultural level, we're really conscious of the, the ways that our actions influence the world around us, the importance of our worldviews, of the things that we consume, of the ideas that we hold as truth, right? We want to hold ourselves to this, we're expectant even, especially millennials and younger, are expected to hold ourselves to a higher standard of consumption, of understanding, of the way that we move through the world and and an understanding that everything we do is political. What that comes with 
I think, that we have not paid enough mind to is the politics of the things that we accept as standard that are not immediately obvious. The figures who, like Francesca Woodman, are easy to slot into issues like feminism or sexuality or surrealism or youth and photography. But when we actually consider them, reveal our own opinions about them to not be based in any reality. And and when you start to consider that, you realize how much in the world you understand to be because somebody else has told you that it is that way. Yep. You can't have an opinion on every single thing in the world, but you have to decide what is and isn't important. And you have to decide what opinions do and don't matter. And most importantly, decide the way in which your consumption of somebody's work, especially somebody who doesn't have authority over it and who arguably never did, in the case of Francesca Woodman, who had full opportunity to write about it. She could have done that while she was alive. She didn't. I didn't want to write about my work when I was 19 either. <laughs> I think that most 19-year-olds are that way. My work should speak for itself. Right. It never does. I think the reason why it's worth talking about and the reason why it is worth complicating is because it is too easy to look at work like Woodman and say that the canonical understanding of it is acceptable because I genuinely believe that our canonical understanding of Woodman is not acceptable. It's flawed on so many levels. Right. Inherently. And if that's true, how many other artists is that true about? Mm-hmm. How how much of what we consume is complete misunderstanding? Not in any malice on our own part, but just because we haven't put the work in. And in doing so, who are we supporting? And what what machines are we continuing to support and allow to exist? Who benefits from... Woodman being viewed in the way that she does, or from Van Gogh being in, viewed in the way that he does, from Jimi Hendrix's music being viewed in the way that it is, Janis Joplin or whoever. You know, once you start to pull up those threads, it gets very uncomfortable, and it can seem like it makes you unable to enjoy anything, and I don't think that that is true, right? You can still enjoy it, but you have to you have to consider it. If we can do that for the dead, what's that mean for the work that we currently consume? What's that mean for the young people who are making work now? What What is their value and what, what value do we place on artwork, whether we know about it or not? The way that we start doing that is start looking at artists like Francesca Woodman for what they were, which is a human being who created a bunch of work that we do not understand and never will. And if that is square one, and we move out from there, with that as our foundation, I think that we can make a much truer and a much fairer understanding of everything that we pull out.
it's no Sam Studios. Well, actually... Did I stutter?